I started coming to this church about 11 years ago this November. Just saying that out loud is still pretty wild to me. And I know that it's this November because, believe it or not, I still have the email I sent to Frank saying, hey, what's this church about? I'm sorry to say, Frank, I, I don't actually remember much of the first service I came to. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do remember, though, is that I liked it so much I wanted to come back. And not only did I come back, but the second time I came, I brought my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Debbie, which, which should, should have told her a little bit what she was getting into when I said, hey, do you want to go to church with me? And thought that was a good date idea. <laughs> I still think it was. The second service, though, both Debbie and I have vivid memories of. And the, the funny thing is that, you know, we kind of remember the hymns, maybe. We kind of remember certain things. I mean, we sat way in the back corner there trying to hide as much as possible as, as uh, you know, new people can sometimes want to do. I know we did that for a long time. Uh, but what we remembered most was actually the sermon. Because in the middle of your sermon, Frank, you said something like, and so in The Simpsons. <laughs> And I never thought I would learn religious truth from The Simpsons. So well done, Frank, because even both Debbie and me still remember that sermon. And yet, I can tell you that even though we were all laughing, there was something about that service that still felt important. It still felt like worship. And it was that, the importance in the laughter that's what drew me back. That's when I knew this place was home. Historically, that balance of gravitas and levity, that hasn't always been there. In fact, the lack of that balance sparked one of my historical fascinations. It's a group called the Humiliati. They were a universalist religious order of mostly ordained universalist men. I say mostly because I just haven't found anybody who wasn't an ordained universalist man yet. And they gathered to, as they put it, quote, quest for more profound spiritual insight and intellectual attainment. They wanted to make sure that the universalist church didn't feel like a series of academic lectures or like town hall meetings. There needed to be something more. And they did this by adding theological gravitas, by making things important, and by laughter. The name of the order itself hints to these two things being forefront in their minds. The name comes from a 12th century religious order in Europe. The modern humiliati knew their history well and they connected to it deeply. And in their papers, they included this paragraph about the definition of their name. I hope you can hear why they chose it. <clears throat> Humiliati, Italian for the humble ones. 
a 12th century association of lay penitents combining the prosecution of gospel ideals with the avowed application of Christian principles to economic practices. Although living in normal family relationships, they frequently gathered in common assembly for mutual edification, both spiritual and social. Denied by the papacy their full exercise of their renunciatory dedication, they led a checkered history of heresy and monastic vows. So, living their faith out loud, check. Uh, family life, check. And a checkered history of heresy. Yeah, these are my people. <laughs> and I think when the humiliati were looking around, they said, those are our people too. Let's call ourselves after them. So as part of their drive to add gravitas, to add that depth that goes all the way back to the 1100s, the humiliati started to do things like write a lot. And one of the ways that they wrote was by rewriting worship services. They found universalist worship services in the 1940s to be, and I quote, informal and artistically barren. Yeah, yeah, they, they really didn't hold back words. <laughs> uh, so they took to rewriting them. They rewrote universalist services that have history like baptisms, weddings, confirmations, communion services. If they did it, they rewrote it. And their hope was to add symbols and songs that would strike at people's emotions so that way in the pews, it would reinforce what they had been thinking and what they had been hearing. One of the symbols, as a quick aside, I put on the back of the order of service. You may have heard of the off-centered cross. That was their doing. You can hear this drive toward adding that artistic beauty not just in symbols like the off-centered cross, but also in the words of the services that they wrote. Listen to the reading from their communion service again. Pay attention to the pure poetry of the words. And know that when they say us, they're including you, too. Deep within us all, there is a sanctuary of the soul, a holy place, a divine center, a speaking voice to which we continuously may return. Eternity is at our hearts, pressing upon our time-torn lives, arming us with intimations of an astounding destiny, calling us home unto itself. Yielding to these persuasions, gladly committing ourselves in body and soul, utterly and completely to the light within, is the beginning of true life. It is a dynamic center, a creative life that presses to birth within us. It is a seed stirring to life if we do not choke it off. It is the presence in the midst, here, is the slumbering God, stirring to be awakened, to become the soul we clothed in earthly form and action. And it is within us all. 
those words alone carry a feeling of importance. They almost sound like they belong in a place like this, a place with beautiful stained glass windows, a pulpit, a place with beautiful music, robes, and stoles, a place with names like chancels and narthex. All of this adds together to build a feeling of awe and wonder. Something important is being done. Something important is being said. The pageantry of it all evokes something emotional within us that is at least beyond my words. And when that happens to me, I know that I'm in worship. That pageantry, that feeling of being in worship, yes, it happens here, but it doesn't just have to happen here. You can find that in your own spiritual practices too, and perhaps you already do. You just need to find those things that invoke that deep feeling. I know that some people will have chalices at home that they light. Some people burn incense. Some people have clothing that they like to wear when they pray or they meditate. Sometimes you literally just have to try things on. I know one thing that the Humiliati did was they were the group that really pushed Unitarian Universalist clergy for wearing clergy collars, the little white tabs. Part of the idea was that every day when they did their daily lives, they would enter it wearing something that marked their ministry. So what would you find important to helping you step into the, that space or that moment? Do you know? What would help you add fuel to that inner light, letting it shine brighter as you enter the holy? In all the searching, I want to remind you that this is fun work. This is supposed to be light work. I was reminded of this as I was reading some of the letters from the Humiliati to each other. In November of 1947, a person named Brother Frederick was the abbot of the order, which meant that he was elected to have obedience of everyone else. Brother Frederick in November asked that the brothers spend 10 minutes of every day from November 15th to January 15th journaling about what happened that impeded their best ministry. I, when I read that, I pictured all of the brothers in the order getting this letter from their abbot and saying, oh yes, I have a new spiritual practice for the next 10 days and fervently going about their day executing the order of their abbot. That was at least until I read the next letter because, or, or should I say epistle, I'm sorry. They, they, they called them, seriously, they called, when, when the abbot wrote a letter, they called it an epistle to the brethren, right? When they, they really took themselves seriously here, right? So let me read you the opening paragraph to the next letter that was sent out in January. 
an epistle to the brethren. Repent ye, for the day of reckoning is at hand. If you have not fulfilled the instructions in the second paragraph on page 2 of the November 11th epistle, I require and charge each of you within 48 hours of receiving this to send the required paperwork to Brother Earl immediately. If you have not even journaled, then spend the necessary time to make searching of your own inner conflicts. Then do the best you can. <laughs> I charge you all, fail not. And the fail not is in all capital letters. And then he keeps going, like, like nothing ever happened. He talks about all the daily stuff. And then at the end, he leaves this one-liner. Read 2 Corinthians 13, verses 10 to 11, to your comfort. And now I have to look this up. I don't know scripture that well, right? This is how it starts. This, I write, I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Comforting words from the abbot. I hope you can hear Brother Frederick laughing as he wrote those lines. I know I do. And I also can imagine the brothers chuckling as they read those lines, unless they were the brothers who didn't do the homework, then they were furiously doing it in the background, hoping nobody would notice, right? And this was something that they took serious. They called it a gosh darn epistle for Pete's sake, right? They took it seriously. And they were laughing. And that was the ultimate message from Reverend Frank's sermon that I still remember 11 years later. Sometimes you have to laugh. When we do this, when we strike a balance between gravitas and laughter, something happens. The intellectual thoughts that we look at and we say, yes, that is true, transition from just a thought to being a thought and a feeling. In church, we don't just think things are true. We also feel truths as well. That was the harsh reality the Humiliati spoke about. It was not a question of whether the Universalist Church was true. It was a question of whether or not the people who went to those services would feel the truth that was there. So I wonder how you enter a state where you both know and feel truth. And maybe there are little things that you already do in your day that do that for you that go unnoticed. I know for me, one thing that I do each morning is I put my rings on. I wear one ring on my left hand to symbolize the vow I made to my wife. And I wear one ring on my right hand to symbolize the vow I've made to my calling. And each morning, I put them on, and there's a breath and a recognizing of something. And then I go about my day. And I'm wondering if you may have something similar. Maybe the garden. Maybe it's a quiet moment of meditation. What do you have? And I hope, too, as you come to church each week, 
that you start to notice the little things here that help you get into that space. Maybe it's the robes or the stole or the candles or the stained glass windows or the organ or the piano, or maybe it's just knowing that there, that there are stories that you don't even know that are here. But whatever it is, some of it can be brought home too. And if you're excited about the things that you have, or if you're not sure about what you have, learn one final lesson from the humiliati. Talk to each other. They got together often to share what brought them into that moment. So talk to people here. Tell them what brings you that feeling. Or ask people what does. You may find that even just having the conversation may start to awaken that slumbering God. Blessed be. Amen. Thank you.